Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. I mean, a biography is not a prosecution brief. It's a, it's a whole person's life. And if you write about someone and describe them as a cardboard cutout figure, you failed as a biographer. Hello and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. My guest this week is Ken Auletta, the legendary media reporter and New Yorker writer, who is out with a new book on the life, downfall, and imprisonment of movie mogul Harvey Weinstein. The book is Hollywood Ending, Harvey Weinstein and the Culture of Silence, and it's a fascinating biography of the disgraced producer currently serving a 23-year prison sentence after more than 100 women accused him of sexual abuse. Ken wrote the definitive profile of Harvey Weinstein in 2002 for The New Yorker, which nearly revealed his sex crimes. But it would be another 15 years until other journalists would expose his misconduct in one of the defining cases of the Me Too movement. I spoke to Ken this week about why he chose to write about Harvey Weinstein, how the powerful movie producer was able to conceal his crimes for so long, and what he learned about Hollywood and the media while writing this book. Ken, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you. So this is an incredible, deeply reported book about the life of Harvey Weinstein, who went from the top of Hollywood to a prison cell after more than 100 women accused him of sexual assault. He's now serving 23 years in prison for sex crimes. Why did you want to write about this man and his life? I profiled him in 2002 for The New Yorker, and I described him as an abusive, volcanic-tempered personality. I came within inches of being able to expose him for sexual predation, for abusing women. But I couldn't get the women to talk to me, so we couldn't write it. Um, and But I tried subsequently to nail him knowing he was he was guilty of that but again i couldn't i i I couldn't unearth women who would talk then in in november actually in october of 2017 first the new york times and then ronan farrow in the new yorker got women to talk and expose him and it was great and he that exposure led to his firing and eventually to his conviction in a criminal trial in new york which i covered every day in 2020. Um, But I was fascinated um, after all of that exposure. What made Harvey the sexual monster he became? What was his power and how did he use or abuse that power? I was also interested in what was his talent? I mean, he he produced and, and distributed some brilliant movies, Pulp Fiction, Shakespeare in Love, English Patient, My Left Foot, Crying Game, one go on and on. And, and, this was not a person of mediocre talent, obviously. So despite his monster, beastly behavior, he obviously had a side to him that was worth exploring, I thought. And, mm-hmm. and also, yeah, I was interested in two other big questions. What enabled him to get away with this for more than four decades? And, and who were the people who did that? Why did they do that? Uh, how that happened. And lastly, I was interested in the kind of Shakespearean relationship between the two brothers, Bob Weinstein, who did cooperate with me for the book, and Harvey, who no longer speak. Uh, but they were they were really tight business partners and brothers, best friends. And what happened? So those are some of the questions that I thought were worthy of exploration. And, and I set out to write a biography. 
you extensively document Harvey's abuse and the vast consequences of it. You also, uh, as you note, you write about his impressive success in Hollywood as a film producer and before that as a music promoter. Did you worry about humanizing Harvey Weinstein at all in the book or even aggrandizing him? No, I I didn't. I I mean, a biography is not a prosecution brief. It's It's a whole person's life. And if you write about someone and describe them as a cardboard cutout figure, you failed as a biographer. You, you want to be able to describe the whole person. I, I, I felt in no danger after describing the horrible things that Harvey did to women, uh, that when I described the talented movies he made and distributed, I felt in no danger that I was minimizing his beastly behavior. As you noted, much of this this book is it's sort of based on, or at least you know, the origin of it was your definitive 2002 profile of Harvey uh, for the New Yorker, which revealed his bullying in the workplace and came very close to revealing uh, the sex crimes as well. Could you tell us what happened there and how you came close to to getting those stories on the record, but ultimately went with a profile that didn't have them in it? Sure. Um, in 2002, Harvey cooperated after saying he wouldn't cooperate, and I said, "Fine, I'll do the profile anyway." He then relented and agreed to cooperate. And we had, we did a total of a dozen or so, about 12 hours of, of interviews, in addition to me watching him in the office and talking to various people. In my last interview with him, I had heard from a producer uh, who I now, now can identify and I do in the book, Donna Gigliotti. And, and she was a producer on Shakespeare in Love. And she told me about two women who were abused at the Venice Film Festival in 1998, um, Zelda Perkins and Rowena Chu. Um, I asked Harvey in our final interview, it was just the two of us in his small conference room. I said, Harvey, tell me about your attempted rape of Rowena Chu and, and what happened between you and she and Zelda Perkins, who was a, who was her boss at the time in your London office. Harvey, stood up and moved to stand over me at the small conference table. He clenched his fists, his lip was trembling. And he said, if you publish that, it will destroy my marriage. I was, it was, I was not a good husband. I cheated on my wife. I was having an affair with Rowena Chu. And she threatened me that if I didn't, if I broke it off as I tried to, she would expose me publicly and therefore ruin my, my marriage and, and destroy the privacy of my three teenage daughters. But he's standing up over me with this cleansed fist. And I said, I have to stand up because I'm not going to let this guy poke me while I'm seated. Um, so as I stood up, what happened was a total surprise. Harvey began to cry. And I don't mean a tear rolling down his cheek. I mean, wailing loudly. You're going to destroy my marriage, Ken. You can't do this, blah, 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 blah. We then was, was, were confronted at the New Yorker. I couldn't get the woman to talk to me. I tracked down Zelda Perkins in Guatemala, actually, where she was raising horses. She hung up. She said, I can't talk to you. They had signed non-disclosure agreements. Each of them had gotten almost $250,000 to sign those non-disclosure agreements and worried that if they broke them, that Harvey would sue them. They'd have to get back the money and they couldn't afford to go toe to toe with them in a trial. So I couldn't get them to talk. And we at the New Yorker were faced with the following dilemma. Could we run this story without the woman confirming it happened? David Remnick, the editor said, 
I don't believe we can, Ken. I think we're not the National Enquirer. I agree with you. We couldn't run it, and we didn't run it, but that's how close we came to exposing him at the time. David Remnick, you write in the book, he cited a Washington Post story. Senator Packwood, when he was a senator from, from the West, had was accused by 10 women by name. It wasn't anonymous accusations. It was by name. Right. He sexually harassed me. And it ran on the front page of the Washington Post. And David was a reporter at the Washington Post at the time, didn't report that story, but he cited that as an example of, of why, how could we go with this? We have no one on the record who will testify that this is what Harvey did. And he was right, I believe. And it would take another 15 years before the New York Times and the New Yorker broke the story of Weinstein's abuse. Did you feel relief when you saw that, that, that they were successfully able to break that story and publish something on it? Joy and relief. I mean, I thought finally this guy has been exposed. And, and people asked me, well, you know, didn't you feel competitive? I was off doing a book at the time. I wasn't chasing the Harvey Weinstein story. I was just thrilled that someone was chasing it and was smart enough and empathetic enough to get women to talk to them and, and, and reveal this beast, which they did, and now he's in jail. And it's truly remarkable when you read either She Said by Megan Twoey or, or Jody Cantor, and Jody Cantor or uh, Ronan Farrow's book, Catch and Kill, the triumph of those reporters to get these women to speak out is like remarkable watching how it unfolds. Yeah, one of the things that, that, that's really interesting is people will say to me to minimize the feat that they perform, these reporters perform. They will say, well, you know, the culture had changed and, and, and it wasn't that really why Harvey was exposed by them. And the answer is not. Yes, there were certain things to change. Bill Cosby had been tried and exposed. Roger Ailes had been fired from Fox News. Bill O'Reilly had been fired from Fox News. But, but that minimizes what they did. They made women comfortable enough to talk to them and overcome their fears and describe what this monster did to them. And, and one of the clever things they did, they got the women to talk in groups. So they weren't isolated one-on-one. -on -one. And, and so suddenly they were doing with other fellow victims of Harvey Weinstein. And it was just brilliant. And, and my hat's off to them. You actually played a role in Ronan Farrow getting his piece published at The New Yorker. How did that come about? Well, what happened was that, that Ronan, I didn't know Ronan Farrow, and he called me in the spring of 2017, again, about eight, eight months before he and the Times exposed Harvey Weinstein. And he said, Mr. Lett, I'm doing reporting on Harvey Weinstein. And he talked to me at some length. He said, could I have access to your papers, which are on file at the New York Public Library? I granted him permission to do that, and as long as he didn't quote anything off the record that was on there. But very little of the stuff I do is, is off the record. Anyway, he called me up in late spring, and he said, I've gone through your papers. Can I come and interview you? I said, yeah, but you're going to have to come out to Bridgeham because I'm finishing a book. And so he came out here for, with his producer and two camera crews for like three or four hours. And he, I said, so what do you got? And he said, I've got three women on camera saying that Harvey abused them. I've got five women on camera, but shielded, their identity shielded, saying Harvey abused them. And I've got the audio tape of the Italian model who in 2015 claimed that Harvey grabbed her breasts in his office. I said, my God, you've broken the case. What's the next step? He says, I meet with Noah Oppenheim, the president of NBC News on August 8th. I said, great. On August 9th, I called him. I said, Ronan, so what happened? He said, can I call you on a secure phone? 
which I thought was really odd. You know, I said, sure. So he calls me on a secure phone and he tells me he did because he, he knew his phone was being wiretapped by, by Black Cube, which is a security agency that Harvey had hired. I said, so what happened with the president of NBC News? He said, he killed the story. He fired me from NBC. I could take it elsewhere, but who would, who would take it? I said, what? I said, give me your number, a secure number, and I'll call you back. And I didn't tell him what I was going to do. I called David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker. And I said, David, I think Ronan Farrow has really cracked the case. And I remember using the word, I think he's judicious. And he said, have him call me Monday morning. He did, and the rest is history. He went off and did the story. NBC claimed to me, and I report this in the book, that Ronan Farrow didn't have the story until he went to The New Yorker. And so at the time when it was exposed, it was like a he said, she said story. NBC says this, Ronan Farrow says that. But there was actually a third party you can go to to check what the truth was, and that's The New Yorker. So I called up Deirdre, who was his editor at The New Yorker. I said, Deirdre, tell me, what did Ronan Farrow bring to you when he came to the New Yorker in August. Um, and he said he brought me three women on uh, on camera. He brought me five on camera, but shield, and he brought me the audio tape of camera. All the things he said to me that he had, he, he had before he went to the New Yorker. So Ronan Farrow was vindicated in my mind, and, and NBC was not. That was, a, I, I thought, a really interesting part of your book. Ronan says that NBC spiked the piece because of pressure from Harvey Weinstein. NBC said that Ronan didn't have enough to run the story. But you investigated it and found that it wasn't just a simple, you know, he said, she said, which is what we thought at the time. From what you can tell, then, NBC was unjustified in spiking the Ronan Farrow story. Not only unjustified. I mean, I I met it. I described NBC's take on what happened a senior executive there asked to see me off the record. Uh, in other words, I couldn't name the executive, but a very senior executive at NBC. And this person said to me, he didn't have the goods. I had people vet what he had done, and they, two women vet what he had done, and they confirmed that he didn't have the, have the goods. Uh, I found that he did have the goods. I found something else, which I report in the book. NBC told Harvey Weinstein the story was dead in July, before they told Ronan Farrow the story was dead. That's a scandal, that that Harvey was so inside. Harvey told his people, it's over. I don't have to worry about Ronan Farrow anymore. Now he started to worry about the New York Times, but he was through worrying about Ronan Farrow. I mean, yeah, the idea of telling the subject of a story before you tell the writer that the story is not going to run, especially when it's about something like like abuse, is uh, mind boggling. Uh, Also, what's so shocking about the notion that Weinstein was able to spike a story at NBC News is the idea that there's this one man who's a producer of independent movies who can decide on what stories get run at a massive international news outlet like NBC News. And it begs the question, if Ronan is right, and you delve into this in the book, what power did Weinstein have over NBC News? Well, I mean, this is speculative. We, we don't right. know the answer to your question. Uh, but I came up with five possible theories to explain why they killed the story. One is that Noah Oppenheim, the president of NBC News, is a screenwriter. And, and, and he's done a couple of screenplays and might want to do some more. Harvey Weinstein is obviously a, a great source for you know contracts for screenwriters. 
That's one possibility. The second possibility is the chairman of NBC News, Andrew Lack at the time, uh, was socially a friend of Harvey's, as was his wife, Betsy, who ran the Vanity Fair's new establishment issue. And Harvey came every year to that, often bringing a, a movie to screen uh, for, for, the, for the group. A third theory, and again, these are just theories. We don't know whether this, this is true. Steve Burke, the, the CEO of NBC, which also oversaw Universal. Universal and Miramax, all studios work together many times and do deals together. I will produce the movie, you will distribute it. And they, they share in, in movies. So he was in business oftentimes with, with Miramax. A fourth theory is that Brian Roberts, the head of the parent company that owned NBC and Universal Comcast, was a social friend of Harvey Weinstein's. In fact, when I profiled Harvey in 2002, he talked about, he used to go to Martha's Vineyard and he talked about what he called his, his, his Martha's Vineyard Mafia. And one of the five members of that mafia was Brian Roberts. They were personal friends. The fifth theory, again, only a theory, and is that Harvey had some information about Matt, Matt Lauer's transgressions, which later came out in, in later in the fall of 2017. And he, he offered a trade. I'll keep my mouth shut on Matt, if Lauer, if you keep your mouth shut on me. All that is conjectural. I don't know whether it's true or not, but those are the theories that, 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 are, that are out there for what explains yeah. NBC's odd and I think outrageous behavior. Speaking of, of, of keeping mouths shut, you describe a culture of silence that allowed Weinstein to get away with abusing women for so many years. And it's pretty astonishing that the allegations against him go back to the 1970s when he was working as a music promoter in Buffalo. Right. And reach eventually would reach, you know, after these ex exposés would reach more than 100 women. How, in what you found, how did he get away with such horrific abuse for so long? Harvey understood something about power or his belief that the key to power was fear. People had a fear. By the way, the other person who talks about the power of fear is Donald Trump. And, and, and he succeeded in keeping people quiet, too. Um, right. I mean, just think about that. When I write about the culture of silence regarding Harvey Weinstein and people's fear of him, I think what's going on in the Capitol today, Donald Trump lies about a federal election and Republican, most too many Republicans, most Republicans by far are silent. They do nothing about it. Why? Because they're, they're fearful. They're fearful that in Trump's case, he will challenge them in primaries and they will be defeated. In Harvey's case, they were fearful of his power. He could, he could drop their roles in movies. He can expose them in the press. He could sue them. I mean, he was a man who believed in being fearsome. And he was, and people were afraid of him. Now, people who I think should have known, even if they didn't actually know, I think they didn't want to know. They knew Harvey cheated on his wives. They clearly heard some stuff that, that what was going on in those hotel suites when those women were ushered up, often by members of his staff, to meet with Harvey and then excused, leaving the woman alone with Harvey. They had a suspect, and, and any number of executives, as I report in the book, who worked for Harvey said they would not allow attractive young staffers to meet with Harvey alone. And I'll tell you a story, Hillary Silver, it's a great story, 
that I tell in the book. She had a job interview with Harvey Weinstein's company in, in the late 1900s. She goes to Merrimack, she gets in the elevator, and Harvey Weinstein's in the elevator at, at their Soho, at Tribeca offices. And he says, who are you? And, she's, and she knew who he was, and she said, I'm Hillary Silver. What are you doing here? I have an interview with Human Resources for a job. But he said, great, come and see me when you're done. Very attractive woman. And she goes to see Human Resources, has an interview, and then the head of Human Resources ushers her down to see Harvey. Harvey, without checking with the Human Resources executives who did the interview, says, points to her and says, you're hired. She then, which is quite amazing when you think about it, she, had, she was going to Europe for three or four weeks and she goes and the day before she's to start work at Miramax, she gets a call from human resource executive who said, we'd like to take, four of us would like to take you for drinks. And she said, isn't this, what a great place to work. What a great culture. They're welcoming me. They want to take me for drinks. So she is joined by the human resource executives one of the four assistants to Harvey Weinstein and two other Miramax executives. And what do they say over drinks? Hillary, don't come to work here. Why? Because he will abuse you. You're an attractive woman. You're in danger of being raped and, and physically abused by him. So she didn't take the job. But if four people in an office knew, and these are not all people who were in the next their office to Harvey, you have to assume that many more people knew. And actresses would complain to their agents. And CAA at one point, powerful agency, issued an apology, which I report in the book, saying we should we should have done more to protect some of our actresses. And I mean, and the fact that there are these employees that they're taking the step to warn this woman, it, it means that they knew about more than just Harvey being a bit verbally abusive at work or bullying. They must have known that there was a serious threat to this woman. Of course, there were also the payments that went out to a number of women in exchange for confidentiality agreements that kept them silent for years, which, you know, people at the company must have been aware of. How many people do you think knew about Weinstein's abuse at Miramax and outside of it? Well, I think a number. I don't. I wouldn't dare place a number on that. And, right. and I don't want to accuse people who work there and, and suggest that everyone who worked there is guilty of, of, of hiding the fact. Some people didn't know clearly, but I believe many, too many knew and kept their mouths shut. And that's, you know, worth being, I, I named some of the people who kept their mouths shut and, and, and enabled Harvey to do what he did. Did you speak to anyone who expressed remorse about enabling him? Oh, sure. Uh, many people felt they should have done more and, and, um, even because they suspected, right. even if they said they didn't know, they should have exposed this guy. I mean, think about it. This guy was, since the early 70s, was abusing women. And not in 2015 did it appear in the press that he was abusing women. And then he got away with it then, right. with the Italian model. And, and, and the first time he was literally exposed fully was, the, was October of 2017, four decades later. That's astonishing. People refer to it the Harvey machine, how he would be able to sort of mobilize this machine into shutting allegations like this down. Did you face any Harvey machine while writing this book or has that been fully dismantled at this point? No, when I, when I, when I, I started to report this book in 2018, by that time, Harvey was, had been fired. He was, he was indicted. He was, he's going to go to trial 
a year and a half later in early 2020. So no, I, I faced no, um, there was a point in, in which Ronan Farrow writes about very eloquently um, uh, in Catch and Kill, his book uh, about how Black Cube was hired by Harvey to do security. And, and they would have people posing as reporters to call you up and find out what you knew and what you were doing about Harvey. And I did get a call from someone who claimed to report, but I always, when, when someone calls me as a reporter, I always frankly answer, because I want people to answer my phone calls. So when this guy <laughs> yeah. called me up and, and pumping me, I, I, I frankly probably said to him, actually, I know I said to him, I think Harvey's an abuser of women. And, but I didn't know at the time that Ronan Farrow was, this is before Ronan Farrow had called me, obviously. And right. But, but they, they did this with Annabella Sciura, the actress who testified in the trial mm -hmm. against him. And Ronan Farrow actually, as he describes in his book, that he was being tailed. I have no evidence that I was being tailed. I, I was not on the story. So I, I suspect right. I wasn't. W one figure who looms large in the book is Bob Weinstein, who's Harvey's brother and business partner. You interviewed him extensively and he has always denied knowing about the assault claims, at least against his brother. Do you believe him? Well, I have no reason not to believe him. I, I mean, he he clearly knew and, and acknowledged to me, I know my brother's a sex addict. And Bob Weinstein had been an alcoholic and he'd gone through treatment and he became a, a, a devotee of, of treatment, of looking inside yourself, admitting your guilt and not hiding it and, and pressed his brother Harvey to do it, to enter a treatment program, which he did in Arizona in the fall of 2017 after he was exposed. But Harvey, much to Bob's chagrin, did not really attend the program, did not admit I'm, I'm guilty, I'm a sex addict, whatever. Harvey's incapable of, of admitting guilt because he believes he's a victim. He believes that these were consensual affairs, or at least he says he believes they were consensual affairs. And Bob was so irate with his brother, that he doesn't speak to him. Stopped speaking to him then and still doesn't speak to him. So, I mean, at, at some point, you know, Bob initially was, was as much an outcast as Harvey was. I mean, people wouldn't return his phone calls. He couldn't get a lawyer in, in Hollywood or Producer, even though in many ways he was a more successful producer than his brother was. His Dimension films were made more money than the Merrimack films did. But, oh, funny. And, and, but now he claims that he's back on the road to redemption and work in, in, in the movie business. And, and So he, from what you can tell, he thinks that his brother is certainly guilty because their relationship had been souring by the time that this, that this all, or was fully soured, I suppose, by the time this all came out. Well, well, it's it's actually an interesting. It's it, it's a, a relationship not unlike a bad marriage, in in that you one day you're in love with you think you're in love with your wife and our marriage will will last, and the next day you want a divorce. He Bob went through that feeling with his brother. He was very upset that his brother would spend money and was a narcissist, and and it was all about Harvey, not about the company. And, and he confronted his brother oftentimes. And on the other hand, he also believed that the company without Harvey would fail. And so it needed Harvey. And he was his brother. He was his best friend. He, they shared a room growing up in Queens. And so he, he was conflicted. In the end, 
when when Harvey was exposed in the Times and by Rona Farrow in the New Yorker, Bob provided the vote. You needed Bob's vote to fire Harvey. He provided the vote, the vote with his board to fire Harvey, and he did. And and you got to give him some credit for that. Um, as Lance Morrow, who was the one independent director who constantly fought uh, to expose Harvey, uh, says. He also, Lance also uh, says repeatedly that this is not the way that a normal company should run, which when you tell that story about the woman being hired on the spot without even speaking to HR, I, I can imagine his frustrations as a board member. He, he, was, he was the lead independent director, and he would have... I actually produced the transcript from a June 2nd, 2015 meeting of members of the board with Harvey, with Harvey screaming and behaving. It's a wonderful, vivid picture of, of, of out of control Harvey. But Lance Murph is constantly saying to him, Harvey, this is not, this is corporate America. This is not a com- the way a company operates. Harvey was a candy store and, and it was his candy store. And he'll, he'll do with it as he wants. You sought interviews with Harvey Weinstein from prison, but his team, from what I understand, pulled the plug and instead sent you a series of responses to questions. What happened there? Harvey and I went through, and I recount this near the end of the book. I have a special section, my, my conversations with Harvey. Harvey's voices throughout the book between birth and 2002 from my New Yorker tapes, uh, 12 hours of mm. tapes, which I used. But then I wanted to... He, he refused to interview me for the book. He told people at the trial, don't talk to Kent, when I approached his best friend, Bill Correo, at the trial. But then Harvey started to get nervous that um, Bogfrey's going to come out, and how do, I, how do I be sure that I can have my say? So through his PR guy, he came to me, the PR guy came to me and said, Harvey, if you will agree ask any negative questions that people raise about Harvey that he hasn't already answered. Will you do that? I said, I would be happy to do that, but he has to be willing to answer any questions I have. And we went through negotiation. He said, no, I'll only do that. Then they came back and I said, deal breaker. It's off. So I thought it was off. He comes back through his PR guy a week or so later. Harvey willing to do it, but you can't tape it. I said, deal breaker. He comes back a week later. We'll transcribe it. I said, no, no, deal breaker. We went through like two months of negotiations. Finally, he relents and he agrees to phone interviews because he didn't have in prison any internet connection. He could do phone interviews. I can ask any questions I want. And I was supposed to go to meet him over the phone at his lawyer's office the next day. That day, the day before, his lawyer in L.A., the trial begins in October, calls me up and he said, Mr. Oletta, you don't know me, but I'm sorry. My name is Mark Worksman. I cannot allow my client to talk to you. He's going on trial. I can't risk that he'll say something. So that was the end of it. And then at some point, I talked to his PR guy, Judah Engelmeyer, who's a very able guy, and I, I found him to be a straight shooter. And I, I said, will he answer my questions? He said, send me the emails, because Harvey's not, not allowed on email. So I sent him questions to Harvey. He then talked to Harvey on the phone. Harvey dictated his answers, and Judah sent me back Harvey's emailed answers. Now, most of them were perfunctory. A couple of times, as I report in the book, he just blatantly lied about things that I knew were untrue. But one of the questions I asked him that he didn't answer, that I I was dying to ask him, Harvey, when you put your head on a pillow at night, 
after raping, let's say, Jessica Mann, who was a main witness against him in his criminal trial. After raping Jessica, how did you explain to yourself what you had just done? And of course, he never answered that question. I suspect if he had answered the question, he would have said it was a consensual relationship. She wanted something from me, a career in Hollywood, and I wanted something from her. She was an attractive woman. And it was, it was a fair trade. I mean, yeah, you described the moment the jury rendered its guilty verdict and a sort of feeble, sickly Harvey mutters, but I'm innocent to his lawyers. He also seemed to the bitter end to believe that he could still be friends with his victims. This is a statement that he gave at the sentencing, which is this level of delusion that I can't even begin to, to comprehend. No, could I? You get, you get into his psychology a little bit in the book. Like, What did you make of, of his, his apparent complete lack of understanding of what he's done to these women? Well, you know, I, I end the book with a quote from Bob Weinstein. Uh, and, and he said, you know, you can come up with all kinds of theories uh, about why Harvey did this or that. The truth is a jury looked at him and found him guilty, properly so, of criminal behavior. But ultimately, when I look at my brother, there is no there there. He has no ability to look inside himself, to be introspective, to, to, to say of himself anything more than I'm a victim. He believes he's a victim. He doesn't believe he's a villain. He has no sense of guilt. And actually, when you look at a definition of a sociopath, they, there are three key ingredients to define a sociopath, according to the psychologists who I, who I interviewed for the book. One is lack of guilt. Harvey has no guilt. He feels like a victim. Two is lack of empathy. Harvey had no empathy for those women. And at one point, I mean, at several points in the trial, he literally, as they were testifying, he would fall asleep. And, and the third definition is he's a narcissist. And Harvey clearly qualifies. Now, you can have all three of those attributes and not be a sociopath. But I believe Harvey was a sociopath. What was your writing process for this book? It involves such a mountain of recess over you know d decades of work and like all of your books. And I, I'm curious how you set about writing it. Well, I create what I call an index. Uh, uh, and, and when I interview people, I then do, go through a laborious process of, of putting in the index what they, the headline, the name of the person who talked to me, what they said, and then the reference, notebook, and I had, in this case, I had 20 notebooks, so notebook A, A, alphabetical, or documents, which I numbered, or books, which I did Roman numbers, so I knew where it was, and then the page number. So it would say, if it was notebook K, it might say page 42 from the notebook. And I would put that in. So I'm indexing Harvey's childhood, Harvey's sociopathic behavior, Harvey's victims, Harvey's movies, Harvey in the, in the 90s, Harvey when he went to Buffalo, Harvey when he grew up, et cetera. And, and eventually I wind up with an index that's probably, I, I could actually look it up, but it's probably 900 pages, single space. And, and then I study that. that. That allows me to get on top of the, all the material I have. Then I study that index day after day. And I start to move it around on my computer like a deck of cards. This is my natural lead, because I, I would have another section that would say leads, opening scene, and I'm competing. And so if I do this as the opening scene, it would naturally flow right. into, because this, this person says at the end of the scene, he, he must have been raised by wolves. 
that takes me into his childhood. And then it's a straight line narrative after that. You go childhood, Buffalo, university, you know, music business in, into Miramax and Hollywood, and then eventually right. into the, and then you figure out where to put some of the incidents that happened in that period of time, his marriages, et cetera. And, that, and, and each time I write something from the index, I split the screen I'm writing and I have the index on one half of the screen and when I'm writing on the other half, and every time I use something from the index, I put a check mark next to it. So I know I've used it. And then, and then at the end, I go through and I see what I haven't used from the index. And I say, well, gee, this is a great story. I should have this. Where would it go in the thing? But essentially, that laborious, really boring process of creating an index, for me, is one of the essential things to, to writing a, a complicated book. Right. Ken Oleta, congrats on the success of the book, and thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And check out coverage of my conversation with Ken Oleta on Mediaite.com. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.